So I've done martial arts for 20, 22 years now. Um, I started when I was in high school. Um, I always had like an interest in martial arts. I always had an interest in, um, in Asian culture. Um, I will blame growing up in the eighties and Ninja Turtles specifically, uh, <laughs> on all of that. Um, so I started, uh, I started training in, uh, in martial arts when I was in high school and, uh, I, it's been like saved my life. Uh, not in the sense that I've, you know, had to fend off some sort of, uh, weapon wielding attacker at any point, but, um, it's just been like the rock for me through anything tumultuous that has happened, uh, pretty much in my adult life. Um, and so I've always been very involved in that, uh, in some way, shape or form since I started, um, still with my original teacher that I started studying with, you know, 22 years ago. And, uh, you know, I've had the opportunity like to meet lots of amazing people, um, through the practice of martial arts, both kind of in terms of their technical ability or just, you know, stuff that seems uh, unreal, but isn't, but, you know, like in the context of like, it's just amazing what humans can do. Um, and uh, yeah, just, I mean, also people that are just really good. Like one of my best friends uh, lives in Kentucky and uh, I met him through the uh, mutual art martial arts organization that we're both part of. And, um, you know, I was in his wedding a number of years ago and he's helped me out, um, in a number of ways. He was coming up, helping me with, uh, my house that my fiance and I bought last year and, uh, helping me with the electrical work among other things. So, um, that aspect of it's been a super rich experience for me, um, for, for a long time now. Um, but kind of to your point about what my health and fitness as of, you know, the last few years, um, I had, uh, gone, uh, let's see, where does this start? Um, well, I had been super stressed out from, um, working on GFDA, uh, like in 2017 and 2018, um, my, uh, my good friend and then business partner left the company and I decided to kind of hunker down and keep going. Like when he left that we, you know, we had the discussion, you know, the company was in debt and it was like, okay, well, do we stop doing it? How does this, uh, separation breakup end up and, you know, all of the complexities around that. Um, and fortunately, because we have, we had and have a good relationship, there wasn't like a big blow up argument and then lawyers and all of the stuff involved that you would usually expect. Um, it was, it was fairly, uh, amicable overall. Um, and so during that conversation, it was like, okay, well, we could just close the business down. You take half the debt. I have to take half the debt and we just move on with our lives. But, um, you know, for whatever reason, for me, I just felt really strongly that there was still something left in GFDA and something that I wanted to explore, um, and not to get into all the details, but basically like I took on the whole company at that point and, and he left. And, um, so there was a lot of there was some debt to be paid off and there was just a lot of work that had to be done for like one person. Um, and so uh, not that I didn't have help in a variety of different ways throughout that time period, but you know, it, it really wore on me psychologically um, and physically I was working a lot. And so um, there was a really good Chinese restaurant around the corner from my apartments in the city. Um, and I just ate there like 
multiple days a week, sometimes twice a day, embarrassingly. <laughs> so um, I had started, I had put on a little bit of weight. Uh, I've always been fairly svelte, so it wasn't like I had, you know, hit any sort of major overweight or obesity, but more weight than I had ever had on before. Um, and I kind of knew that that was happening. And then uh, I was, uh, well, I had a lump on my testicle and it was like, oh, okay, well, now I really do need to go to a doctor because that's nothing to fuck around with. Like I hadn't been to a normal doctor in like over a decade. And it was like, okay, it's, it's time to go. So I'm in my mid thirties. It's probably good to get a baseline on a bunch of different health metrics that I don't have. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so I went and I did that. And when I went to the doctor, you know, like the, fortunately the, the thing with my testicle ended up being no big deal. Um, but you know, in the taking the battery of like tests and blood tests and so forth, they were like, well, you know, you're a little bit uh, pre-hypertension as far as your blood pressure and you've got um, your cholesterol is a little high and, uh, you know, you're like edging in on overweight. So it was just like a lot of like little markers, like you're not in a bad place yet, but you're headed that way. Um, and, you know, it was the first it was the first time I had been to a doctor. And so my new doctor and everything for me, um, and they were like, well, we'll put you on statins for the, uh, cholesterol. And I was like, what the fuck? Like I'm 35. Like I, you know, like you're not going to recommend diet and exercise or like, you know, I'm not like sailing my ship out. Like, Oh, well he's a lazy motherfucker. He's probably not going to do anything. We'll just, you know, we'll just resort to the pharmaceuticals. So, um, I was like, no, I'm not going to get on statins. Like, absolutely not. Like I'll, fuck around. I'll change my diet and, uh, we'll see what that does. And, you know, we'll see if it's something that's more nature or nurture. So I went, uh, really strictly, uh, vegetarian, well, pescatarian, whatever it is with fish, um, for like half a year. And, um, fish is a vegetable. Yeah, practically. Um, <laughs> I, you know, the thing is like, I really like sushi, so I wasn't going to be able to like totally give that up. Um, so, that was what I did. I, I pretty much gave up, you know, red meat, chicken, all that. And, uh, you know, I did that for six months and, um, I, to some extent, I also like challenging myself with, you know, a training regiment or a thing or whatever. And so it was like, all right, you know, I can do this. Um, so I did that. I got my, uh, I got all my numbers down. I lost a little bit of weight, et cetera, but then kind of in the process of that, you know, I'm also innately curious about everything. And so I started, doing some reading, I started reading about like what current data says about cholesterol um, and kind of stuff like that. And um, I had come across uh, the, an all meat diet. And, you know, then I was reading, like I said, I was reading about the cholesterol and it's like, okay, well, it's not exactly what everybody says it was. That's not the same correlation or causation between eating red meat and cholesterol and mortality and, you know, all this stuff. And, you know, I'm obviously I'm no doctor, but, um, I was like, well, there's some interesting stuff online. I've watched a bunch of videos from both doctors and, uh, for lack of a better term, like fitness influencers that are talking about this. And, you know, it, it, eventually that popped up on like Joe Rogan and things like that. So I said, you know, I'll give this a try for a few months. I'm going to do my own blood work by way of like quest diagnostics. That way I'm not hearing about it from my doctor. Like, Oh my God, what are you doing? You're like murdering yourself. Um, so I did that. Um, and, uh, I, what I found, um, you know, anecdotally from my experience doing that was, um, it wasn't as hard as I thought it was, uh, so I went fully just as a clarification, I went fully just meat. It wasn't as hard as I thought. Um, it was actually kind of enjoyable. I felt really good doing it. 
uh, at least after kind of the initial week and a half or so of my body adjusting. Um, I lost more weight. My blood pressure dropped more. Um, my cholesterol did go up again, but not as high as it had been. Uh, and a whole bunch of other blood markers were ended up being really healthy. My HDL was high. My triglycerides were really good. Um, and I felt good. And my anxiety kind of like mellowed out. Um, and so, yeah, so that was kind of like my experience with that. And I kind of like ebb and flow with it in and out. Sometimes I'll go really seriously uh, with it for four or five weeks. And then I'll kind of like back off and do a keto diet. And um, then in other instances, it just kind of like, you know, free for all, which typically happens more like, you know, in the summer, my fiance and I go on like a beach trip with her family and it's, you know, like I'll just eat whatever and then kind of get back to it. So I give myself a bit of a flexibility in that regard. Yeah. That's cool. Did you, um, did you listen to, I think it's the human performance outliers podcast at all at any point in that Mm. process? Yeah, that sounds really familiar. Um, it's, it's Zach bitter and this other guy who I want to say might've been the guy who started the carnivore thing. I forget his name off the top of my head. He's like a bodybuilder mm. type guy. Um, but, uh, is it, um, Oh, Sean Baker. Is it Sean Baker? I don't, I think I have to look, I don't know off the top of my head. Let me look it up. Yeah. Um, Um, but but I was, when I was training for, uh, ultra stuff, I was a big fan of Zach bitter because he had set the, like, uh, hundred mile world record. Mm. Um, and so I found their podcast and he's a big, uh, like fuel or train low race high kind of guy. So like low carb training, but then like carbs on race day sort of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was just really interesting to learn a lot about that. I don't, I like did carb cycling and stuff for a while. Yeah. It looks like it is Sean Baker and Zach. Mm-hmm. Bitter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was interesting. I, I find that like, I don't know. I don't, I've really enjoyed the challenge of doing stuff like that for periods of time. Mm -hmm. I find that it gets like annoying over extended periods of time. Um, and so it's like, I sort of go through phases of like, depending on what I'm doing and the, the like social scenarios I'm in, like trying to keep a healthy through line, but like not doing anything super extreme for too long. Right. But I had sort of like a similar thing where a few years ago, it was probably like four years ago now, I was like 200, 260 pounds and was like, I just need to like do something about this. And mm-hmm. like just started by like going to the gym, but then had to dig into like all the <laughs> science and, you know, nutrition stuff and go full nerd on it. And so, yeah. uh, you know, ended up going into like triathlons and ultra marathons and competitive CrossFit. And like, it's, it's been a really fun journey. Um, but I feel like it's one of those things too. Like, I'd be curious your thoughts. Cause I feel like I've learned so much mm-hmm. and I've learned that like so much of what I grew up understanding about nutrition isn't true, Yeah. but I still have a hard time. Like, um, like there's some simple stuff that is true and then there's lots of it that's really complicated, right? Like even to the like, you can go vegetarian and have a lot of great success. You can go all meat and no fiber and have a lot of success. Right. Like there's a lot more viable options than I think I was like taught when I was younger, but they're all, there's trade-offs to everything too, you know? Yeah. 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 I feel the same way, you know, and it's really interesting to me, um, kind of, I was just having this conversation with a friend of mine this morning, um, that so many, there's so many people that I know and have been good friends with since, you know, I was a kid or, you know, high school, et cetera. And like, partly because I, I lived out of state for a while, 
Um, and also partly because I'm usually very busy with uh, work and, you know, just life in general. I don't get to see them quite as frequently as I did when I was in my 20s. But like s- some of them still have this diet that I ate, you know, when I was 18, 20, 22, you know, that's like craft macaroni and cheese or like Chef Boyardee or, you know, just like random things that when I was younger, like I just didn't think about like, oh, yeah, you know, like I drink uh soda like i drink a coke like at least one a day like that's that's normal um you know and i like i've gotten so far away from that and it's like pretty much everything that i eat whether i'm on a diet or not is like whole foods in some capacity you know it's like real fruits vegetables meats not really much packaged or processed stuff and you know with cooking it's like i'll cook with sauces and seasonings but that's about it i don't i don't really get into much else um but it's, it's just like, it was kind of jarring. It was like with some of my other friends, it was like, oh, you like, I mean, it sounds really judgy, but ever and to each their own, but it's like, man, you eat that? Like, you still think that's okay to eat? Like, ah, it's so crazy. Yeah. Uh, and it's more just a, me reflecting on my own, you know, journey of what I used to eat compared to now and, you know, what I thought or was taught. Um, but yeah, the, uh, the sugar lobby back in the seventies or whenever that was, they, they had a long-term impact. That's for sure. Yeah, definitely. Well, and I feel like that's one of the things that's like, even when I, you know, came into all of that, I think I was very much in the like, carbs are always bad camp. And then as I got more and more into like the performance Mm -hmm. side of it, it was like, oh, this stuff, like, there are tons of really high performance people that like, if you need fuel, this stuff is really good fuel. But then there are also, you know, trade offs with like, being a super high performance athlete also isn't the healthiest thing necessarily. Yeah. So like, it's all like, what are you, what are you trying to do? But it was funny. Cause I, I just remember, you know, I, I lost a, a bunch of weight and people were like, man, you must eat no carbs. And I was like, dude, I eat like 4,000 calories of carbs a day right now. Cause I'm mm-hmm. like running 10 miles every day and lifting. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, it's that whole, like, uh, Michael Phelps eats like a 3000 calorie pancake breakfast every day thing or yeah. whatever. And it's like, it's not that carbs are bad. It's that you are, filling your gas tank and then sitting all day, you know, right, like, right. Yeah. Um, well, now that we have a, a full fledged nutrition podcast yeah, yeah. from two, two guys curious. that like have no fucking idea what they're talking about really compared yeah. by comparison. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm curious, like, cause you mentioned sushi again too. Like where did this deep Asian cultural interest thing come from for you? Oh man. I think that it was just innate. I don't know. It's really hard to say. Um, I think that it was probably like, I, like I said, like it really was kind of, um, Ninja Turtles when I was growing up, uh, I was big into video games. Um, so there was a little bit of that from like Nintendo and Zelda, those sorts of things. Um, when I was, uh, I was really lucky because when I was, um, when I was young, um, my parents live very close to where both sets of my grandparents were. And so, um, as when I got a little bit older, kind of, you know, after kindergarten into, you know, primary school kind of thing, um, during the summers, my mom had gone back to work and, uh, she worked for like a Christian nonprofit, um, for, for a long time. And so for, you know, a handful of years until I was old enough to like be by myself entirely, uh, I'm a spoiled, rotten only child. Um, I would go, you know, she would drop me off at one grandparent's house um, and I would, you know, every day and I would be with the same grandparent for that week. 
And then the next week I would go to the other grandparents' house like every day. She dropped me off, picked me up at the mm-hmm. end of the day. Um, and so I just alternated back and forth at my grandparents' house throughout the summers. And, um, you know, my so my grandparents were both uh, on both sides of the family were really involved with, you know, my upbringing. And, you know, they would take me places and have me try different foods and different cuisines. And um, like on my mom's side, my grandparents would often take me down into the city um, my grandfather, we would, uh, we would go park at the, the park and ride, which was not far from our house and, uh, take a bus into downtown. Like if you were, you know, working downtown, um, and then we'd go out to lunch places or go to the Carnegie museums, uh, the art museum or the natural history museum. Um, and so I got like a lot of experiences that way. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, surprisingly, especially with my grandfather, uh, having fought in Okinawa in world war II. Um, you know, like he took me to the Japanese restaurant, which was in uh, Station Square in downtown Pittsburgh, which is still there. Um, I've had dinner there like once or twice in the last couple months um, with my fiance. And uh, yeah, so I, I don't know. I think that there was like a, as a young child, uh, there was a little bit of an esoteric nature to that. And uh, among the different cultures that were presented to me in pop culture, that one just really jived for for some reason. Um, and, uh, as I got older and I got into high school, um, like I said, that was when I started martial arts, but, um, I started with a friend of mine, uh, well, a friend of mine had been training and, uh, we were dating girls who were friends at the same time. So there was like four of us. And, uh, I remember like we used to drop him off during the summer, um, to classes and then, you know, pick him up like hour and a half, two hours later. And then he'd like punch me or show me a joint lock or whatever. I'm like, Oh, that's so fucking cool. Like, I want to do that. So a couple months later I joined and then, uh, he and I were training, um, a bunch. And, uh, then shortly after that, he got a job at a, one of the only at the time Japanese restaurants in Pittsburgh. And, um, then I started working there as well, which was actually owned by a Korean family. Um, so it just like sort of happenstance. I had all of these different experiences that kind of like pointed me in, in that direction. That's really cool. Yeah, I feel like it was, I mean, I think you're a little bit older than me, but I feel like generationally there was sort of this like wave, this like cultural, like I remember even, I feel like my dad, we would watch a lot of like Bruce Lee movies Mm. and stuff. And it was always just this like very cool, mysterious sort of thing. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I always felt like I was sort of interested but i never dug in that hard like i never went down like i feel like the like anime and manga stuff is huge now and like i never really got into any of that world yeah i hit Um, i hit that a little bit uh well i hit it very hard but for a short period of time kind of also high school ish um you know nerd admission my friends and i started the anime club at our high school (laughs) but um yeah so that was like one of my first uh experiences at some sort of leadership role which is hilarious in retrospect because that was such a boy that was a whole clusterfuck (laughs) well it's interesting it's funny like the uh the shadows of the future you know the idea of like starting this community around like art and storytelling Mm -hmm. that long ago and like sort of how that's like a, a little seed of you know what even you're doing now it's funny when i look at stuff in that like that in my past that it's like, oh, that wasn't it, but I was like figuring it out. You yeah, know, like yeah, it was, yeah. It was the beginning of sort of wrestling against it. Oh man, for sure. Like I remember, you know, to my interest in 
graphic design and like particularly print related graphic design, you know, like books and magazines and posters and stuff, which, you know, prints largely quote unquote dead these days. But um, I remember being like a little kid and absolutely fascinated at how like a magazine was produced. And like, I used to draw all sorts of comics and cartoons and um, like fold eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper. And my parents would staple them. And then there was like leftover, uh, uh, cardboard boxes from like when my dad would get beer, like not the way that it is now, but just like the corrugated cardboard. So those would get like stuck to the outside as like a hardbound cover. And I remember like looking at what I produced and then like an actual book or magazine or whatever. Um, and like aspiring to that, but like having no idea. And even with like, you know, my parents had a dot matrix printer, um, when I was particularly young and eventually like a, you know, laser printer and everything, but just like not understanding as a child, like how the printing could like make it to the edge of the page. Like I didn't, you know, you're a child. So you don't think about like, Oh, well they don't make the printing to the edge of the page. They just print to a certain point and then they cut the page. Like, (laughs) yeah, you know, of course, but um, yeah, that's such a strong memory. I remember like, you know, feeling the texture and everything of the paper and thinking like, how do they do this? It's like, should have been a Mr. Rogers episode or something. I know. I think that's one of the things that's like, I don't know. I was very much like the kind of kid who like loved watching how it's made and loved, Mm. you know, just like learning about all these different things. I was super into art. I was super into like World War II. I wanted to be a fighter pilot. And uh, I don't know. There's just something about like the creation of experiences and, and like exploration and figuring out how things work that's so interesting to me. And I think it's something that's like, I don't know. I almost feel like it gets, um, it's one of those things that just in the list of like, as you grow up, I feel like people sort of like lose perspective on the value of that in Mm -hmm. some ways that it's like, Oh, it just is what it is. You know, it's just, it's just a print or it's just whatever. And it's like, these are all like little pieces of magic. If you really are like paying attention, you know? Yeah. And I think like, even we did a project, um, last year that was like, this big um, training curriculum for a waste and recycling company for all their truck drivers. Mm-hmm. Um, and like some people would say that it's lame. I thought it was super fun because I got to spend hours and hours and hours learning everything you have to learn to be a trash driver. Yeah. And like got to ask all the questions of like, how does this work and how does that work? And explain lockout tag out to me on like a driver level and what's this procedure. And I don't know. I just think that stuff is so cool. And it's one of my favorite things about like, what I've gotten to do is getting to go into places like a print shop and be like, okay, explain to me how all this stuff works. Yeah. Because I feel like it's all this stuff that when I was a kid, it was like that. It was like, how do you get this to be, go to the edge? How do you get this to like do what it does and getting to just like get behind the curtain to with people who are really good at what they do and be like, okay, yeah, explain to me how this works because that's so cool. You know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That was one of the things uh, so that like in being in design, you know, before having GFDA and everything else, it was really interesting to me because like you're making your branding or you're making artifacts for all these disparate companies and you get to learn a little bit about all of them and ask those questions like, well, how does this work? How does that work? You know, why is your messaging this? Like what's what's all the thinking that goes behind it? And so the, for like I used to joke that it's like a professional ADD. It's like you get to make this stuff, but it's for all these different companies and corporations and missions and organizations. Yeah. So that was actually one of the questions I had because, you know, I, I I read the book 
and and the book is good. I would highly recommend it. But like, there was a few things that were still unclear to me, and maybe I just missed it. But like, yeah. did you guys ever get big into like client work, or were you right into like we're just making art and selling art, or like what's that journey been like? Um, that it's kind of like a side story that uh, it wasn't included because it wasn't as important, and also because like when we started doing GFDA, um. We like both myself and Jason Bacher had our own like clients that we worked with um, as just individual freelancers. Um, and it's just, you know, how uh, naive we were when we started, you know, it was like uh, I'm doing stuff and he's doing stuff. And then it, it took us like two years to be like, well, we could do stuff together. <laughs> we're like doing yeah. all this other stuff with GFDA. Like, oh, yeah, we could like, you know, share this work. And then, you know, that did start happening. And so then we did start having client work. Um but then further with um, with the client work, like we early on, like once we started actually taking on client work, then we would take client work on one of two ways. It was either like, well, we're just Brian and Jason. And we're not good fucking design advice because of the obvious reasons, like people don't necessarily want to be associated with that, um, with that name. Um, or if people did hire us for being GFDA, um, then it was usually under like a non-disclosure. So um, even though they were okay with who we were and our name and everything else, it was like, well, it's a non-disclosure. So you can't, you know, you can't talk about anything. Um, and so largely like that's kind of why that stuff wasn't included. Um, but we had done like uh, a handful of work for some larger organizations and some of the smaller ones. Like we did, um, we did a bunch of branding for a company, like a design company in uh, Brooklyn called Beam, B-E-A-M, which um, they've continued to to grow and expand. And Beam was actually kind of an interesting case um, because they had come to us um, initially as like a wholesale client. So they were buying prints and mugs from us kind of in a, a, the, for us, the e-commerce heyday of like 2014, 2015-ish. Um, and then when Jason moved to New York, he went and met with them in person um, and then, you know, we were continuing to sell to them and we did like a holiday market where they featured a lot of our products and, um, they had kind of picked up steam as their company and brand were progressing. And then they wanted like a full branding suite. So we ended up like redoing their website and all of their brand materials, logo, et cetera. Um, and so that was a good project. And that actually ended up in, um, a book called, designer's research manual, um, which was written by one of our professors. Um, and so there's like a whole case study, uh, about like the positive effects that we had on their, their growth and their sales, both in person and online, um, as well as, uh, their like more qualitative metrics. Like all of a sudden they were getting into magazines and blogs that they hadn't before that they had kind of felt were out of reach. Um, you know, and that was, we felt was largely based on kind of a research process that we had done to communicate like who the owners were personally as part of the the brand. That's super cool, man. That's really, really cool. So like something that is always interesting to me is just this idea that there are many ways to skin a cat in many businesses. And I feel like art and communication and creativity is like a good example of that. Um, how, how did you go from like, I guess I I would be curious to know your backstory because I feel like for a lot of us, it's like, oh, you can 
draw or design or take photos or whatever, you should either go do weddings or go to school and make logos. Like there's sort of this immediate like service industry push mm -hmm. a lot of us get to like go make stuff for other people. Yeah. And like, how did you go from that to being like, we're going to make this sort of brand art company ecosystem thing that's not all client work? Because I feel like most people don't ever make that turn. Right. Well, uh, I mean, for me. What do you call GFDA? I don't know. <laughs> um, we've gone back and forth, uh, Jason Richburg and I, you know, multiple times um, over the last few years. So well, I'll answer that first and then I'll kind of jump, we'll hop into the time travel machine. Um, because like when we launched the book, the the goal was to kind of turn GFDA into uh, like an events company um, doing workshops on uh, risk-taking as applied to creativity. Um, we had done a number of events for some high-profile clients like Nike and Adobe. and um, then from there, like when we got the book deal, the goal with the book was to help us to get more of those like large scale corporate and I mean, even smaller studio and agency clients. I mean, we, we didn't really discriminate one way or the other. We just enjoyed doing that work. But, um, you know, the book came out at the end of 2019 and then uh, COVID hit. And in that short interim, like between January and March, I mean, we had, we were looking at picking up multiple, um, clients like all over the world for, for doing that. We were going to be in like Germany and South Africa and India and, you know, like Facebook Revlon, Monster Energy, all these people were contacting us after a book came out. We're like, oh my God, this sounds great. We would love to do this. So when that all kind of collapsed, then, um, you know, aside from the, uh, general disappointment that occurred, um, and kind of like waiting to see like when like, when are we going to be able to do this again? Um, it probably took about six months until we were like in a place where it was like, okay, well, our events probably aren't going to come back. Um, and if they do, they're going to look a lot different and, you know, who knows how long it's going to be. So we need to like switch gears. And so then we were working on like redoing the website and kind of repositioning ourselves uh, with that as like a less major role. But then there's kind of always been this like, well, we do workshops, lectures thing. That's one bucket. We do this client work. That's another bucket. Uh, and then we've got the product sales. That's another component. And so like by fall of last year, when the website relaunched, there was still sort of this like three-way split between those things. Um, and But as we kind of got into the holiday season, for, for me, it was like it became more and more clear. It's like we need to focus specifically on one thing and that needs to be the e-commerce stuff. And then the other ones, you know, we'll see what happens um, and what comes along. But like I, my sense was kind of looking at some of the user data and analytics from the website is like people are arriving at the website and they don't know what the fuck we are. And I want them to come and have a good experience, but it's like, I need them to spend money on the website because if we're not generating revenue from this, then we can't keep doing what we're doing. So like then that like, you know, it was kind of live, like as we're, we had launched the website, like making constant changes, like, okay, this needs to feel a little bit more clearly like an e-commerce store. We need to change how the navigation works. We need to change how we're communicating this information. Um, my dog just showed up. Say hi, Nico. Puppy. Hey, Nico. So like, that's interesting to me because 
my brain from the outside mm-hmm. would go, okay, we have sort of these, you know, three or four funnels. In my own experience, it's like workshops for people like Nike and stuff sounds like a way lower overhead, bigger fish to fry 100%. thing to focus on yeah. than physical good e-com. So I would be like, well, fuck posters. Right, right. <laughs> I'm just going to go train other creatives. So why do you go into the thing that's like, let's ship 5 million posters a year? Well, uh, because nobody's doing events. Like, you know, I think mm. that like uh, Apple, Facebook, Google, I think most of them haven't even got back to the office yet. Um, and, you know, the the people that we've talked to, uh, you know, like we've get like a little like inquiry here and there. Um, and most people are, you know, they're like, oh, well, you know, if we do this, it's going to be highly restrictive and, you know, like all of these like safety measures. And it's like, yeah, that's all well and good. But, um, you know, like the way that our workshop is designed and why it's effective is it's like it's in person. It's up close and personal. It's like people working and building and doing things with their hands, like shoulder to shoulder and, you know, that kind of experience. And, you know, like we could do other stuff, but like that's it, what we what we created and what we ran worked well, and we got very good feedback and very good outcomes um, from the companies that we worked with. And so we kind of weren't willing to compromise. And so it was like, well, you know, if we could, the other problem with that as uh, for for us was like, <clears throat> um, I mean, this is a kind of a multi-faceted issue because the profanity in the brand has been an issue. And so that means that we couldn't advertise anything that pointed to our website. Um, and so that was kind of an issue with the workshop. Now, there's workarounds for all of these things, but I'm just kind of giving you like the global view of like, yeah. you know, of issues. So, um, and it wasn't clear to us like pre-COVID, like I hadn't really invested the time to understand how we could market and like the funnel process to get people to, um, you know, come to us for those high ticket items. Uh, I, I think that now I have a better idea of how we would accomplish that. But, um, you know, the the people that we did get were, everybody that hired us for a workshop was because somebody in their organization had one of our posters. And so the way, at the time, the way that I was looking at it was like, well, the product sales aren't really costing us anything. If anything, we make a little bit of money off of it. And, we can't do traditional advertising. So this is kind of like our advertising. So as long as we get this out to people, you know, it's not costing us anything. Then it's, you know, leading to these larger ticket things. And we would get like a handful of them a year, which was good enough um, at the time. But uh, yeah, but with, with those, like the income was like, so like, Oh, all of a sudden you've got a shit ton of money this month. And then it like trickles down, trickles down, trickles down. And then you get to a, you know, a trough, three months later and you're like, fuck, like we really need to land another workshop client. Like what do we have in the pipeline? And so that sort of uh, very tumultuous experience was like, you know, grates on you, it wears on you psychologically. So um, part of the thinking was in, at least is over the last six months is like, okay, well let's build up the e-commerce end of things. Let's make that super stable. Let's really get a good handle on that and a process and a good set of products and, Let's start figuring out how to drive more people to the website. Let's figure out how we can um, own our audience rather than relying entirely on the whims of the algorithm and social media, which continues to fuck us left and right. And, you know, let's try to get off of the tit of, of that. Um, 
And then, you know, then we've got like a stable income that we can count on uh, on any given month. Oh, there's a dog. <laughs> and, um, hey, Nico. and then, you know, as we get that stabilization, um, then we can, you know, if we get events, then that's like gravy on, um, on everything yeah. else. Here, let me put him, uh, in the other room so we don't have. Noise. Oh, I don't mind. It's up to uh, you. He'll, he'll just like, if I stop petting him, he'll just like whine and whine and whine. So come on, bud. It's very, very real life here. Oh, what a cute boy. <sighs> yeah, he's, uh, he's blew out both of his knees like uh, about two oh. months ago. So he's finally getting surgery uh, on Monday. Uh, so he's kind of been limping around. He's young. He's only five. Uh, so he's been, he just doesn't. Usually full of energy, running around and everything else, and you know now he just has to hobble. Uh, one went, and then the other mm. pretty quickly thereafter. Before we even able to get him in to see a doctor, and then once he saw the doctor, it was like, oh, he probably blew out his knees, but you're gonna have to wait for a surgery consult. We're like, well, how long is that gonna take? Nah, seven, eight weeks. Like, fuck. So finally yeah. had that, and so now he's scheduled for <laughs> surgery. But anyways, um, sorry to hear that, man. Yeah. So, uh, where did I leave off with all that? So yeah, I guess it was, uh, what I was saying was the, like have the baseline of e-commerce as, you know, something that we can count on and have like clearly established. And then, you know, everything else we can build off of that as a, uh, with some stable footing. Right. Well, I think the thing that sticks out to me about that is this idea like of, um, I had sort of a similar experience with COVID where I was focusing on like this sort of like high ticket roller coaster, like travel cinematography mm -hmm. work that it was like, okay, I'm going to go like work for four days at a time, make a bunch of money, sit around for a while and then like take off. And then COVID just killed all right. of that. And so in many ways it was like, okay, this stuff is a big opportunity, but I think the blessing of COVID for a lot of people who were ready for it is like, okay, we now have bandwidth freed up to work on all the bottlenecks that we've ignored mm -hmm. by being relatively successful the last period of yeah. time. And so that's where I was like, I'm going to go learn all this other stuff that I just know I've been sort of sleeping on, on like my own marketing side, the communication side, the business side, the bookkeeping side. I'm going to finally get like all these things squared away. And the last few years of that, I feel like has put us in a really good position for like where we're headed now. But that idea of like, okay, the workshops work. The workshops are a big opportunity. The workshops work for the format and the platform. And so like we could spend a bunch of effort trying to like fix something that already works to mm -hmm. adapt it, or we can wait for it to come back. And in the meantime, we can work on something that's going to work, whether that comes right. back or not. Right. Feels like a smart decision to me. And that idea of like there's sneaky marketing to it. There's all these other things that sort of feed into the bigger puzzle we're trying to to build um, I don't know. I think, I think that's really cool and really smart. I mean, I would imagine it's really complicated being in the whole physical goods e-commerce world. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, I, it's way more complicated than it used to be. I feel like, you know, we were really fortunate, um, when GFDA launched and we got all these requests for products and, you know, we largely entirely relied on the viral nature of our content. And so we didn't have to do anything for the first like four years, like sales continue to increase regardless of what we did. Um, 
And, you know, there, in retrospect, of course, there's a ton of missed opportunities, but uh, now, like, I've, you can't see it, but in front of my computer is like, I've got all these post-it notes as I've been trying to figure out like, okay, how does e-commerce actually work now? Um, and like getting a stronger understanding of it because, you know, on one hand, like I've run an e-commerce business, theoretically speaking for 12 years, but on the other hand, I haven't focused on it for like six. So there are some things that I know kind of like really well. And then other things that you would expect somebody that's like, you know, had one year of experience recently be like, why don't you know that? Um, You know, like even up until fairly recently, um, like maybe a year or two, like I really didn't understand what the, like the way that funnels worked. Um, And so it's kind of like, that's been one of those things where it's like, okay, well, you know, how do we get that to work? What's, what's the process? And, you know, even with, um, as we're moving forward in the next few months and coming out with um, some safer work product lines that will allow us to do some advertising finally on Facebook and like capitalize on that. So I'm really curious as to how some of these uh, other methods of driving traffic to our site and, you know, getting sales um, can work for us. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I feel it, it feels very similar to me of like, I've been, you know, making content for people for, for over 10 years, but I feel like the last few years was like, I'm going to sit down and like, really learn a whole bunch of stuff about all the algorithms. I'm going to really learn a bunch of stuff about like engagement. And cause there's all these things that, you know, get thrown around that I think I take for granted. And the more I learned about it, the, the better I feel like it all feels. And the more confident I am to actually like point people at things we can do that maybe aren't the most common paths, but like they still tick all the right boxes, you know, which I think is one of the most fun things of being creative. But like, it's interesting because it's interesting to me, I guess, because like you guys have a big audience. You have what, like over half a million followers on Instagram. Yeah, I right about. Um, and you've got products, you've got an established brand. And I feel like there's this big narrative that's like, if you get an audience and you have e-com, you just print money. It's like, quote unquote, passive income. Yeah. It's like, as long as people follow you and you have something to sell them, Man, that's, you'll be a millionaire. Yeah, so wrong. <laughs> it's so wrong. Um yeah, I think that you know we've we've made a lot of mistakes in in that sense, and I and I think that that is the the common view that a lot of people have. Um, and you know, because I know for a fact that there are people with a fraction of our audience that make exponentially more than we make. Um, and you know, I think that we became very focused. Uh, you know, again, because we weren't necessarily looking at it in terms of um, product sales we became very focused on um, follower growth and engagement uh, kind of shortly before our book came out because we felt like that was a good way of reaching people to inform them about our book. Um, and I, you know, obviously we were very successful in growing our audience because we grew it from, um, you know, when we got the book deal, I think we had like 25,000 followers in 2017, uh, 2018. Um, and then by the time the book launched, we were like around 80 and that was the end of 2019. And so here we are like three, two and a half, three years later at like half a million. But then, um, you know, the algorithm has changed multiple times in the, you know, the last three years, various permutations. And the most recent change, whatever it was, uh, kind of like late October, early November has basically totally stunted our growth. So, you know, again, no advertising. So all of our growth is hundred percent organic. Um, and, 
we were getting to a point where we were tacking on like an easy 20 to 25,000 new followers every month, um, like net. And basically since December, we've been like completely flatlined. Um, so that's been frustrating, but it's also kind of been a realization, which as I was mentioning earlier, in terms of like owning your audience, it's like, okay, well, I don't want to be at the whims of social media and we already experience a good deal of censorship for the profanity and censorship seems to be something that continues to become uh, ever increasingly prolific in uh, social media spaces. So it's like, it would be unrealistic to think like, oh, that'll never touch us ever um, for a variety of reasons. So it's like, well, okay, well, what can we do with, what can we do about that? And also like if our, goals for success are, uh, at least one of the goals for success has to be financial stability of the business. So we can't place that goal underneath followers and engagement because otherwise we'll have all the followers and engagement in the world, but then like we can't keep doing what we're doing. So then it fails. So, um, you know, the, even in just like the last month, we've been incorporating products into the Instagram feed. And so now we're posting twice a day with our content at noon. And then, you know, either an associated product or just any product uh, a couple hours later, usually at like three or four. Um, And of course we don't get the same engagement on that. And that has uh, to some extent damaged our already hampered engagement, but we've increased sales. Um, And so, and now people are more familiar with the fact that we have products. And it's interesting because like the the way that you and I kind of got connected is, um, I also committed to like, okay, well, I need to reach out and start talking to people who are engaged with the brand because I need to shed whatever uh, ignorance and arrogance I have about like how people perceive us and what people want from us. And, you know, some of the, like a lot of the feedback that I've gotten both from um, like mentors and experts and customers is like, well, you look at your Instagram feed and you don't see any products. So how does anybody know that you have a product? And of course, in my head, it's like, well, if you just click on a post and you read it, like as you swipe through, it shows a product. And like every day we say like, we have a product, but like everybody has said that, not everybody, but a lot of people have said that on both sides of the spectrum. So it's like, okay, like take a dose of uh, humility here. It's like, okay, you got people that are making more money than you with less followers and your followers saying like, oh, I didn't know you sold stuff. Like, okay, that's a problem. We need yeah. to fix that. Well, and I think you've also got some level of like, cause, uh, okay, I'm just going to say yeah, yeah. this and, and hopefully it's not no. offensive. I, I, I struggle with this idea of like, so you, there's, there's this idea that I think we, we think of a lot of time that's like lateral expansion. So we want an audience, we want eyes, we want organic growth, we want numbers to be moving mm-hmm. up. But as you mentioned, like sometimes sales and engagement are actually tradable metrics. They don't necessarily rise together like we would think right. they would initially. Um, but so like for the GFDA feed – you need to create a deep enough connection with enough of that audience that there's a motivation for them to get something more than the free daily advice Mm -hmm. that's designed well that's getting delivered to their feed, right? It's like, okay, so why would I codify this or get a physical representation of this or whatever else? Because it's like, I think about this sometimes when people are like, oh, I have like this meme page that posts posts Nike shoes and has 4 million million followers. And it's like, great, but can you do anything Mm -hmm. with that? Like- it's sort of like it's a cool number and that's not bad. Like if you just want to like share advice with right. the world, you can get it out to half a million people. But now you're getting to the question of, well, now how do we 
drive behavior out of those people that allows us to capture some amount of, I think of it as like um, equity harvesting almost, that it's like you create brand equity and now we want to like create this like deep brand equity and then we sort of skim off the top mm -hmm. of it, right? And that like a lot of the times the unfortunate wake-up call is we have really broad equity and it all goes about two inches yeah. deep. And like I ran into this when I, I used to run a, a film Facebook group and we had like 3,000 members. People were um, booking tons of jobs and buying and selling gear and like it was a lot to manage. And I remember being like, hey, guys, if like if we made this like $5 a month, like we could make it awesome and it wouldn't burn me out. And everyone was like, yeah, no, it's not, not worth it. Like Facebook groups are supposed to be free. I ended up shutting it yeah. down. Um, but I realized that like, it wasn't that it wasn't valuable. It was that I just had like not done a good job up front of establishing value. And then like everyone had gotten used to getting all the things that they valued for mm -hmm. free and then trying to turn that corner was tricky. And so it's like something that as I've gotten back into some of this stuff has been like, okay, how do we set it up? from the beginning so that there's like content and there's free content and there's stuff that's valuable and we're like doing a good job of communicating like what the value propositions mm -hmm. are. Um, and so like, that's even something that like when we were talking about this new podcast or whatever you yeah. want to call it is like what we're, what we're talking about doing now is going like, okay, let's do all these like really cool interviews. And instead of doing like a weekly Joe Rogan type mm -hmm. drop, we do like five days a week, we drop snippets that mm -hmm. are free mm -hmm. and they go to Instagram, TikTok, everything. And so we're feeding sort of the awareness mm -hmm. thing. But then maybe the only way to get the full interviews is beyond some behind some sort of Patreon-esque, yeah. you know, you want the rest of the story. This is what you have to do. And it's like, okay, we're giving away tons of free content. We're giving away tons of stuff that's valuable to the people who are doing interviews because they're still getting tons of brand awareness out of it. And like, it's all super shareable, yeah. but we're, we're holding the stuff that's like for the, the small percentage. Cause I think that's something that I've also had to come to realize is that like conversion rate mm -hmm. problem, right? Of like, okay, so the more and more people you get, the number of people who are going to drop like really high, uh, it's like a yeah. pyramid that it's like the bottom keeps getting wider, but the top stays yep. pointy. And so it's like, okay, we only have so many people who are going to give us like a ton of workshop money or like sell something, but those true fans are really mm -hmm. valuable and we need to give them opportunities to engage with things. And that's where like, I, you know, I've been a fan of your stuff. I wanted to support your stuff. And I was like, I'm going to go buy, you know, three posters and two signed books and whatever else. Um, but I think that question of like, okay, if you're not like, I'm going to go drop a couple hundred bucks to support these guys, like why, what's your motivation to spend money mm -hmm. here? Yeah. You know? Um, and that's something that we've tried to think about where it's like, I don't know. Because I think the the advice is great and the prints are great, but when everything is just sort of a physical representation of something that's already free mm -hmm. digitally, I think it's a it's an interesting problem you find yourself in, I guess is just what I would yeah, say. You know? Yeah. Well, and I think that the, um, you know, at the moment the, we lack a diversity of products, you know, it's like we, which is what we're trying to address in like the next two to three months um, is, you know, expanding that and doing some things that are a bit more dynamic with the content um, in terms of things like greeting. But you also sort of have a, a million products, like how many actual prints 
How many versions of the advice? Do you uh, so there's like 180 to 200 like written paragraphs. There's like 500 pieces of advice of those 500. We've got somewhere in the realm of shy of 200 that have written content that goes with it. Um, and we're releasing, you know, every day we like go through and we're releasing that. So we're actually almost done with that. We will be done with all of those 180 in three different colorways, um, like in the next four or five weeks, maybe less. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and then we'll be, I mean, like, uh, Jason, who I work with is, is writing more, but it's like, obviously you're not going to have a brand new one every day, et cetera. So, um, so yeah, that's, you know, we'll have, you know, 180 times three colorways of, of that content in that specific form. Right. Um, well, and I feel like what's hard about that is like, even for me, it's like, I have three of them on my mantle mm-hmm. over here and it's like, I would love all of them, but I only have so much wall 100%. space. Yeah. Um, and I felt that way. F- and like, I get anxiety around like, which ones do I pick? Yeah. Cause they're all so yeah, good. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Um, Oh, you're welcome. Have you guys ever thought about doing like this is just a crazy off the top of my head thing, but like one of those like old school like tearaway yeah. calendars that it's like a daily yeah. that would be sick. Yeah. I would buy that. Um that is on my high level list of things to do. The issue with that at the moment is when we signed our book deal, we have uh our agreement says that we cannot produce any bound materials of which a calendar like that counts for a period of three years from the publication of the book. Yeah, because basically what they don't want is other products that we make that compete with the sales for the book. So um, technically speaking, that would be this coming January, we would be able to offer that product. Um, And in fairness, like we got a really good, um, in our contractual negotiations for the book, we got like one of the best, like, because I have a, we have a book agency that represents us. Um, in that process, they said, basically, we negotiated the best possible deal for flexibility with products that we've ever done uh, for that. So unfortunately, the calendar is like the one thing that falls into that, that like we can't do until, you know, December, January. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I get it, but it's like they also don't want you publishing another book or anything in the meanwhile, because um, that's kind of like, I guess, the three, the first three years are kind of a bread and butter period for getting their return on that investment. Right. And God forbid you guys try and build, build like any more uh, brand equity that would cause more people. To I, buy know, I know, I know, I <laughs> know. Um, but you know, other things I think, you know, like I agree with you and that's been one of my concerns is like, we're such a print centric company. Um, you know, for a long time it was like, well, we only had like five or six different prints before we started producing this daily advice content and then making them into prints. It's like, well, how many prints are you going to have in your home office studio dorm apartment? And then how many of those prints are you going to put up that have profanity on them? Right? Like it's just, it's a dwindling number, but, um, so that's really caused us to think about, you know, products in a couple different ways. So, um, you know, like apparel is one thing, like we've in previous iterations, we've done shirts. So those are going to be coming back. Um, some of the feedback I've gotten from people are for things like um, socks, um, which I think is a really interesting. I hadn't really thought of it this way, but somebody had mentioned like, I would love to have socks that have the advice on it. So I have like, you know, the different advice that I need every day, like seven days worth of socks that have like whatever reminder. And it's like, you know, that's even something even with the profanity because of like how it's situated is like. You, you don't necessarily see it. So it's like one of that thing that's like for you. Right. Um, and then. That'd be a great gift right. too. Like a week of 
good fucking advice. Socks would be like a great yeah, Christmas um, gift. And uh, greeting cards um, is something else that we're very focused on because so many of the pieces of advice are, you know, motivational, aspirational, um, and could be applied to things like, you know, graduation or, um, you know, stuff like that. So those are kind of some of the key items that we're thinking about um, and in the process of developing. Is there a world where like, um, is there a world where you would ever, because I guess like the thing that strikes me is like, to me, part of, I totally understand the like safe for work thing. And I mean, I had that conversation with Mandy where I was like, I'm going to put three posters that I'll say <laughs> fuck on them a lot on the wall. And so like, I'm sorry when your yeah. nephews come over. Um, but uh, there is some element of like, I think that's part of what makes the brand special to me. And so it's like, how do you mm -hmm. maintain that? And I get this sense of like, some people, you know, are comfortable displaying it, but then some people maybe insularly. And so like, I was almost thinking, what if you even did like, you know, like they have those like mass texting mm -hmm. apps now. What if it was like a daily text of advice and you pay a dollar a month or $2 a month or whatever it is to yep. be on the list that like, we just text you a piece of advice yep. every day. And maybe then you go, okay, we're actually going to stop sharing all the advice for free on Instagram. And if you want to keep getting it, you know, here's how we're going to send you your daily advice. And then it's like, it's private, it's low overhead, it's scalable, yeah. low ticket. But also like if you capture, you know, even 10,000 of your 500,000 right. people or less than that, you know, like that adds up on some level pretty quick yeah, too. Um, that we are a hundred percent working on that right now. Um, everything that you just said. Yes. Um, uh, Perfect. I'm here to just give you all your good ideas, but pretend. Yeah, that yeah, no, I that's fine. Uh, you know, send me an invoice. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, Perfect. I, it'll be 10% of the annual recurring revenue of this text. Right, right. Which at the moment is zero. <laughs> Perfect. I will take my negative Excellent. 10 cents. Um, yeah. So I just, uh, I'm in the process of, of like you working with this company called via, um, which is a two way SMS platform for e-commerce businesses. And the, the primary thing that they do, they've, they've grown, they, they started, um, I want to say 2019 or early 2020. And they were originally going to be a, um, a two-way messaging platform for restaurants, but then because of COVID, like all the restaurants closed. So then they pivoted and I think they're valued at something like a quarter or a half a billion dollars now in like, like less oh, than wow. 36 months. Um, so I mean, kudos to them, but they have a really great platform. Um, and you know, the primary way in which people are using it as an e-commerce business, which we will use is like, you know, marketing. Um, so I'm in the first month of setup with them where, um, cause there's all sorts of restrictions that you have to abide by with, uh, SMS or MMS for that matter. Um, and one of the things I have them looking into is, um, I don't know if you can text people profanity, like from a company. Um, right. Exactly. Cause of what? like some, you know, FTC thing. Um, and it's also, even if it's opt in, that's, that's what I'm trying to find out. Um, and even with that opt in stuff, can you just make everyone sign a waiver? Well, then if somebody sues me, that's like $5,000 per violation that, uh, you know, so then if you get like, yeah, have you seen that? Man, that stuff's like the, uh, that stuff drives me up a wall sometimes. Cause like I get it, but it's also obnoxious. Have you seen, um, are you familiar with liquid yes. death? Yes. Like they have a like sell your mm -hmm. soul thing you have to do to like get into their like marketing club. I wonder if you could do something like that. That's like a, like sell your soul uh -huh. waiver 
that it's like it technically is like will you absolve us of whatever we send you yada yada yeah. yada by submitting this you you know acknowledge yada 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 and then it's like okay send and that's part of like the agreement especially if it's a paid buying right. thing you know i don't know if that's what you're yeah. going to do but like the cuz i feel like you can't possibly be like oh you can't I don't know. It just seems crazy. Yeah. Maybe it's true, but it seems crazy that they would be like, you yeah, can't I know. do that. Yeah, I know. Well, I mean, it, it has nothing to do with the company. It has to do with just whatever the regulations are from the FTC, which, again, you know, maybe maybe right. it is. Right, which means you can, you can put porn online for for free, but you can't sell an F word on people's the, <laughs> cell it's, phones. It's the story of my life, man. <laughs> but, yeah, um, no, we would love to – the like so yeah we'll have the usual like you know uh targeted marketing and at ben cart all that stuff for sms um you know and the data on that is just ridiculous like how well that you get opens and conversions especially compared to like you know newsletter and definitely compared to social media which is practically zero um but uh yeah, yeah having the advice as something that you can get daily and pay for um and uh, potentially offering like two different tiers, one that's with an image and one that's just the text um, is is something that we're thinking about and kind of, you know, again, because it's like, uh, it's not, it's actually not cheap um, to do that. I mean, it's a couple cents per text message, which doesn't sound like a lot, but, you know, if you, like our newsletter right now, we send out uh, pretty much daily um, and that doesn't really generate a return. That's going to have to change because all of the, um newsletter companies are eliminating their unlimited sends. And so as it stands right now, like we're with MailChimp, we're going to move to Klaviyo um, in the next few weeks. Uh, like it's just going to, it's it's pretty much impossible anymore to have unlimited sends. And so for us, it's like, you know, we've got a mailing list shy of 30,000 people and you get like for our plan, you get like up to 300,000 sends. So it's like, well, you, 10 days, you're done. Like that's it. And then we're you're, right. we're paying a substantial amount of money to send emails out to people for free, um, so right. so yeah, it's kind of like well, how do we you know we've got to change how we operate with that. Um, so trying to come up with something that's reasonable, like you know five ten bucks a month, like and also utilizing that to um, incentivize sales. So it's like all right, well you can pay. Like, let's just make up a random scenario. Like, okay, it's 10 bucks a month. You get daily text messages with an image. Um, but then also we'll give you a $10 coupon that's good for our store. So theoretically it could be free, but then you're also incentivizing like a purchase. And so you're not really losing that money. Um, it becomes worth it ultimately right. to, to do that because nobody's, there's nothing we sell. It's only $10. So, um, but, but yeah, you know, that's kind of been the, the sales and marketing aspect that I've really been trying to educate myself and think through with this, which is like, okay, well, how can we, how can we get people to engage with our brand in a, in a way that's financially healthy for us? Right. Yeah, man. That, that's so cool. That makes sense. But yeah, I mean, I've had the same experience where it's like, I started looking into some of those text message platforms cause I have some, you know, similar related ideas and it is like, uh, you know, if you've got a healthy business, it's totally justifiable. But if you're trying to figure it out, it's like some of that stuff is an investment, you know, to get into like email newsletters at scale yeah. or text message platforms at scale. Like there is a <laughs> a not insignificant cost to a lot right, of that right. stuff. Yeah. And that's kind of been, um, you know, we we're offering the print on demand for all the daily advice stuff right now. But in the long term, medium term, um, 
I'd like to get off of that because the profit margins are so narrow. Um, it doesn't allow us to do a lot of things that we need to be able to do to scale the business. Um, you know, and it's kind of like it's working really well right now, but in the sense that, you know, we've got this wide array of products available. However, um, you know, like it, like for, for instance, it really impacted us, um, over black Friday weekend because the most that we could offer as far as like a percentage discount, I think I can't remember if it was 10 or 15%, which like basically eviscerated any profit margin that we had on a, a lot of the products we were offering at the time. But at whatever that number was, again, I forget, uh, it was not enough to incentivize people to buy. And in talking with some other people who have like had e-commerce businesses for years, they're like, oh yeah, like, let's just say it was 15%. Like 15% isn't enough to get people out of bed for like the Black Friday weekend. And, you know, even for us, like we never offer sales at this point because I feel that it devalues the brand. So it's like very, very rarely, because otherwise you end up like, uh, like J crew, like I buy some clothing from there, but it's like, Every, it's always on sale. So it's like, why would I ever pay full price? Like you just train the customer to like not value it for what it's worth. Um, so yeah, like we had uh, compared to previous years and, you know, percentages, et cetera, it was just like not a good holiday sale. And, you know, you live, you learn, you figure out like, okay, well, you know, we need the need to increase the cost of our product, which I don't think is entirely reasonable given a variety of factors, or we need, we need more margin in order to offer those discounts, but also to do any, any other things, um, you know, cause we can't have like a spring cleaning sale or you can't offer like, you know, buy, you know, three prints, get one free kind of deal because it's just, you know, you just eat up all of the, the money that you're making. So it's, it's an interesting problem. And by interesting, I mean, it's a pain in the ass. Yeah. It's funny. Yeah. It's funny how that works. And that's like, I feel like that's something that I've really been looking at is like, what are, what are the opportunities, but also what are the opportunities with enough margin in them that we can sort of like use them to get other stuff mm -hmm. up to speed, you know? Cause it's like the, and that's, I guess part of why I was curious about the e-com thing. Cause it's like, I would love to do physical stuff at some point but even i was talking to a buddy and he was like if you're gonna do like physical stuff you should do like really short run limited edition collaborations with existing mm -hmm. brands um that's like we have a hundred of these or whatever it is like do a quick drop yeah. sell them out uh go like higher ticket with them he's like you don't want to have an e-com store open all the time right now he's like it's just not for where you're at it doesn't seem wise and i think that's probably true um but yeah so that's something we've been trying to figure out is like what are like really high value partnerships we could do with storytelling mm -hmm. um and content and everything put together to tell the story of like um you know even like a small theoretical example we were playing with is like i a buddy of mine is doing a thing in july where he's like running uh, this loop of a lake every hour mm -hmm. for 24 hours. And I was like, it'd be really cool. Like that's something I've always wanted to do. I was supposed to run a 50 mile trail race last year and mm -hmm. couldn't because of COVID. Um, and like to go back and finally do that, but to do it, like to partner with like a local, like sneaker yeah. customizer and make like challenger mm -hmm. sneakers, do the, the event in them, do a video on the event and then be like, we have like 10 other pairs of these available if you're interested in this story yeah. or whatever, you know, but like do this sort of storytelling event 
merchandise cross promotion event that's like also a partnership mm-hmm. with someone else. Um which is really fun sounding to me, you know, the logistics of it and like actually making it work are a whole nother conversation. But I just think that kind of stuff is really cool. And even like that Mason Kitsune thing you guys did, these sort of like little crossover partnership things are, are, are they seem fun. I haven't done one, yeah, but they um, seem fun. Yeah, the Mason Kitsune one was good. It was the first like crossover partnership that we've done. Um, I mean, really in a couple of years, we had done some back like, 2015, 2016, which uh, I think we had some mild success with. Um, We've got a couple more that we're doing this year. And it's kind of like, it's it's definitely been like a learning process, um, especially the the Mason Kitsune one in, in a good way. Like I don't have anything negative to say about them, but it's definitely like, um, like some of the products that we made, um, like I'm, I'm happy with, but like we didn't push the envelope enough, uh, on what we developed and what compared to like what we wanted versus what they wanted. And I think, you know, it was a little bit on our end when we started the conversations with them early last year, like I was in a very different headspace with GFDA and it was like, Oh, this is just such a great opportunity. And like, I kind of was, uh, like I'm, I'm a very flexible person in general, but it was like, Oh, there are some areas in which we should have pushed back because I think we could have done, um, better work, but I mean, it's, it's just like, it's a good learning process and, you know, they were, they were good for yeah. the, the experience. So we're doing, um, a pen with a company called Baron Fig in, they're based out of, uh, Brooklyn, New York. Um, I've known the owner Joey for a long time and we kind of, when we, uh, when Jason had moved to New York, um, we had, he had, Jason had connected with Joey and then we had gone out a couple of times and, um, you know, kind of lost touch in the last few years. And then, um, you know, even back then, like 2015, we had talked about doing a collaboration because um, they were shortly, they had just started their business a year or two earlier. Um, and then, I don't know, somehow we got reconnected again, like in the last eight months or so. So we're doing a pen with them, which I'm super excited about. Um, I actually have just like confirmed designs and files and all that uh, earlier today. Um, and then Ricardo Gonzalez, we did a collaboration with him. He's, um, uh, it's a living. Um, we did a collaboration with him in like 2015, um, which was also in collaboration with beam that I mentioned that we had done the branding for, uh, for New York design week. We did these giants. Um, I think they were like four by six foot posters, um, that sold. We did like an addition. We did like three different ones with him and three of each. And they, God, they were so expensive. That was, that was like a little bit too much high end. Um, you know, they were just too highly priced. I mean, one, the cost of production was so high. And then, you know, for us to make anything off of it, it had to be even higher. Uh, and so I think that we had kind of, you know, outpriced ourselves from our, the, the, the vast, like 99.9% of our audience. I still have one of them in my basement, probably do some sort of giveaway at some point. Um, Genevieve Gordard, though, did buy one of those prints who's like a HGTV person. Um, so that was kind of cool. And Jason like hand delivered it to her house. Um, but uh, yeah, this time with Ricardo, we're not going to make that same mistake. So um, we're working on like a couple different products, which will be much more reasonably priced and also much more reasonably sized. Uh, and so I'm excited about that. And then we're working with a guy who's kind of been a mentor to me. Um, Simon Whitehouse, um, he used to be the CEO of um, uh, J.W. Anderson, which is under the LVMH banner. Um, he's currently CEO of a 
company in Europe called EcoAge. Um, but he's got a, his own little side project company called um, EBIT, which is Enjoy Being in Transition. Um, and it's, a, it's kind of like a fashion, mental health thing. It's, it's kind of like hard to describe, um, but it's, it's all about like, you know, life is like a constant series of transitions from one thing to another to another. And it's like, you know, mm. kind of enjoy the journey uh, messaging. Um, so we're doing um, some content with him as well as looking into offering um, uh, NFTs for the first time. Uh, with those, it's kind of like dip our toes into that realm and see how that works out. And then uh, donating a portion of the proceeds um, from both the physical products, because, you know, like everything, we'll do the posters, but um, with, but also with the NFTs to um, some mental health organizations. Um, and I, we haven't picked out any yet, but we're looking at some both here and abroad. So, um, yeah, we're hoping like all of those to, you know, we'll continue to help us to like grow and to expand into, you know, different audiences. Yeah. That's super cool, man. That's really, really cool. I, um, I love this. We need to do this again. I want to be, uh, sensitive to your time, but I have a whole nother list of things <laughs> that I'd <laughs> yeah, love sure. to dig into sometime. Um, do you have time for like a four or five questions? Yeah, sure. I'll do my round? best to be concise, but we'll see. <laughs> well, perfect. Cause they're questions that are sometimes hard to answer quickly, but All whatever right, sure. you can do is fine. Um, okay. I have some incredibly powerful questions ready and I will start on uh, your signal. Ready, set, go. Perfect. In an increasingly Canva world, why does design uh, matter? Define Canva. Oh, great question. I did, it's, it's some Photoshop app thing. Oh, people okay. Use online. Um, ask the question again. <laughs> You're going to have fun editing this. <clears throat> I guess maybe like, no, that's fine. I think maybe like a better way to ask the question is like in a world where good, like decent is yes. very accessible to everyone, right? Like there's so many apps, there's so many tools. Like it's, you can, you can sort of whip something out that's better than the old papyrus right, brochures right. at like the local restaurant. Why does good I design I think that uh, the definition of good design has had to change. Um, and I think that it is not, ex it is not solely about how the, the thing, the looks, but it has to do with like, measurable results to whatever your objective is. Um, and that's been a frustration of mine with the formal design community in the United States for a long time, because um, as design has evolved and like, you know, I went to graduate school for design and the big part of graduate school is all about uh, research-based design. And so the, the way in which, I mean, this is like almost 10 years ago, but the way in which, um, it, it, for me, that my perception is in the design community, it comes from a place of insecurity. It's like, well, design is so important and here's why. And like we do these research practices and they're based in various social science research methodologies, behavioral, you know, et cetera. And, you know, you do things that are like focus groups from like the more traditional marketing standpoint or, you know, more academic things to, to get your point across. And so the argument in the greater design community in the U.S. is has been that for a while. But then interestingly, 
what's celebrated in all of the design annuals and magazines and blogs and so forth, which I've like entirely given up on reading at this point is like, Hey, here's the hip, cool new thing. That's just like visually pretty. Um, and so it's like, it's always like, well, there's, it seems like this real big disconnect because what you're celebrating in the community is like these, I mean, they're beautiful, they're amazing, et cetera. But it's like, well, yeah, but then you're talking about like the value of design in terms of like, it's, you know, these research practices and and how to like get deep and how to have this narrative component and all these things. It's like, well, why aren't you celebrating that? Why isn't that like at the forefront of the field? Um, and so for that, and like a handful of other reasons, like I've kind of, you know, I've just sort of stepped away from the general graphic design uh, community. I mean, I don't have any ill will or resentment towards it, but it's just like, I just doesn't feel like it represents uh, me or the direction that I want GFDA to go. Ha, how's that for quick? Yeah, that was good. So it sounds like it sort of has to do with like the intersection for of sure. form and function. For it sure, can't just for be sure, one or the yeah. Other. That's super cool. What is your favorite emoji? Uh, favorite emoji. Um, I don't know. Let's let's look at my phone. See, what have I used recently? Are you not an emoji guy, or you are? And just, uh, too closer to not an emoji guy, but I do use them. Um, uh, I probably let's see. I use the little like celebration like confetti thing a lot uh, yeah 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 yeah. and the laughing crying one but not the laughing crying one that's sideways it's, you know there's too much emotion in that <laughs> uh, <laughs> unless it is gotcha. really funny that makes but, sense yeah, we'll say those two that's those are those are two good ones i don't use the congratulations i probably do use the sideways laughing crying one too much um what has been a hard lesson you've had to learn with how you think about money? Um, oh man, there's a couple things with this, but I think the, the hard lesson that I've had to learn um, is how to think about money from a standpoint of like a compounding approach. And I don't necessarily mean like compounding interest, like, you know, your uh, high school teacher trying to convince you that you should, you know, start your savings as soon as possible. I mean, in terms of like, okay, you know, we've got this much liquid capital available to us right now. Like there are certain expenses that we need to account for. And then we're going to take a certain portion of this and like, quote unquote, invest it. And what are we going to invest that in? Like, okay, well, uh, we're going to invest this in marketing or we're going to invest this in uh, collaboration or we're going to invest this in our own products. And then saying like, okay, well, that's, it's going to cost X amount. And then what do we stand to gain from this? You know, and like, what's the, and and then like, once we get that, like, what are some of the intangibles that we get alongside of it? Like, does that also help to increase our followers or even just thinking like, um, uh, or how to strategically do that? So it's like the, the Mason Kitsune thing. It's like, okay, well, they're going to invest a certain amount of money in it. We're going to invest a certain amount of money in it. Like if, like, how, how do we make sure that that turns into more money more followers, more engagement, more subscribers. Like what are all the components that we can put into place to make sure that this is a worthwhile investment rather than thinking about money from the simple standpoint of like, I pay this, I get this back, you know, and it's a very like flat kind of approach. And that is admittedly how I thought about the business for a long time. And I think also partly because it's a little bit of um, 
the conflict in my experience between service-based pricing and product-based pricing. And, you know, that theoretically product is scalable and service is not at a certain point because there's only so many hours in the day. Um, but, uh, yeah. And I also think that, um, my friend Richie Norton says, uh, pricing is branding. Um, and I, he might not be the original person that said it, but he's the first person who said it that I remember. Um, and so it's like constantly having the confidence to charge more for your services and for your products, um, within reason. Um, and you can tell even the fact that I have to add that within reason, there's like a little bit of hesitancy there. Um, but also like the, as you know, as more money theoretically comes in, then, you know, when the opportunities to come up, when the opportunities to do things that maybe are not as profitable present themselves, it's like, you still feel comfortable being able to do that because it's like, okay, you know, I'm really passionate about this and thank God I charged that pain in the ass client, you know, what I needed to charge them because now I can do this thing that I'm really excited about and, you know, I'm not going to really earn a whole lot of money on. Right. No, that totally makes sense. What is your favorite TV uh, show? Favorite TV show. Mm. Can I name a few? Or do I have to pick one? Oh, sure. Right. Can name any. <laughs> I'm just seeing how strict the rules are here. What's a, like, if you were going to flip something on? We watch uh, on? a lot of Top Gear slash uh, uh, Grand Tour. Um, and I, I'm not even, like, yeah. necessarily, like, I'm not a huge car guy. But I find that that, sh- the, that those shows highly entertaining. I like all of the presenters there. I like Clarkson's Farm. I love um, uh, Amazon did James May, our man in Japan. And since I'm a huge, you know, Japanophile, um, that was like such a great show to watch. And that also came like a few months after uh, my fiance and I just got back from a trip to Japan. Um, so really enjoyed that. Um, and uh, I haven't finished season four yet, but I, you know, the martial arts thing, I love Cobra Kai, <laughs> you know, to be, to be cliche. That's awesome. <clears throat> hey, nothing, nothing wrong with that. Last two. What is your favorite dish at your favorite restaurant? Uh, favorite dish, favorite restaurant. Let's see. So the Chinese restaurant that I mentioned that I haven't been to in a while because it was making me fat, but it was really fucking good. Um, the name of the restaurant was... Uh, hmm. Chengdu Gourmet, and they were, uh, I love Szechuan cuisine. I love spicy food. And so my favorite dish there was a dish called Chongqing Chicken, which is like fried chicken with uh, like Szechuan peppercorns and there's like some cilantro and garlic. And um, man, I just ate the shit out of that. Like so many times during the week. (laughs) Yeah. And then I love, I love sushi. Um, Unfortunately, my favorite sushi restaurant closed due to COVID. Um, But uh it would be hard for me to pick something from that restaurant because a lot of times when uh, we would go, um, we would get like a omakase. So it's like whatever their, you know, seasonal chef's tasting is, was kind of like, you know, we go there for special events, whatever anniversary, et cetera. Um, So that was always changing, but yeah. That's awesome. What last one, what is your biggest obstacle? The easy answer to that is myself. (laughs) In so many ways, it's like, man, it is, it is so apparent to me, uh, from a business perspective. And I've also found this in, you know, as I continue to study and train in the martial arts, like the problem is always me. Um, and you you hear that a lot, like when you're younger, I guess, or maybe you just hear it all the time. I don't know. I haven't been old yet to know, but, um, 
the depth of how true that is continues to unfortunately reveal itself to me daily. <laughs> um, and in martial arts, it's been interesting. And I, like for me, because martial arts, maybe we could talk about this in our next uh, conversation in some depth, but like, because I've studied martial arts so much and it's such a passion for me, it like influences everything I do. Like when I, um, when I left to go to college, when I, when I went to Kent state for uh, undergrad, I took, the passion that I had for martial arts in the first couple of years of like when I was in high school and so forth. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to, now I know how to passionately pursue something. I'm going to do that to my design practice. And then my design practice in college, I learned how to like practice really diligently. And so then I brought that back to my martial arts. And so for uh, a long time early on, it was like this interplay back and forth of, of those two things. But, um, so anyways, I, I tend to view a lot of stuff through the lessons that I learn in martial arts. And as I, you know, at this point, 22 years in, it gets harder to articulate like that to somebody else necessarily. But like anytime you're trying to do like apply a technique to somebody else, like let's say you're trying to put somebody in an arm bar and do a joint lock or like a throw or something and it's not working out the the first thing is like oh well it's the other person's fault or you know there's something they're not doing right especially if they're trying to work with you cooperatively to like learn or practice something but like the more and more that i have experienced it's like oh no actually it's my problem and it's like you know if the person can resist your technique um then it's actually a problem that you have like it's tension in your body or your structure that's inhibiting you from being able to accomplish this in a seemingly effortless way um regardless of what the other person is. And so with like the martial arts practice, I've for a while now, I've kind of just constantly put myself into a state of like, if this doesn't work, it's always my fault. It's always my fault. And it's just kind of arriving back at that. Um, and, you know, sort of having that initial experience there. And then like, I kind of bring it back to the business. It's like, okay, whatever this problem is, it's like, you know, I, even as much as I complain about not being able to do advertising or whatever, like there's something that I'm getting in the way of or not doing properly that needs to be addressed. And like, that's what I need to, to fix. So, um, yeah, like I said, it, that's, uh, the, the painful truth of that is like a daily occurrence for me. Like, ah, oh, fuck, that's my fault. That's such a good answer. 